You're listening to Your Rivers Are Wrong, the podcast. My name is Merle. I'm here with my good friend Dante, and we're here to build worlds and tell their stories. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whenever you may be. Welcome back to season two of Your Rivers Are Wrong podcast. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Dante. And I'm the other one. My name is Merla. And we're back, as we will be every week, to talk about the wonderful whimsies of world building, the arts and aesthetics of setting up a setting and telling stories born from it. Merla, I gotta say, oh. it's good to be back. It's so good to be back. <laughs> Hey. I totally missed this. Oh, gosh. All right. Let's do the usual. For people who are tuning in for the first time, of course, uh, we mm. are talking about this is a podcast about world building. Yes, it uh, is. We pool our collective experience and bring prompts to the table that we might find interesting. So uh, before mm-hmm. we jump into it, let's catch up a little bit. Uh, <laughs> what have you been up to? Uh, it's been a month since we've last recorded. I was going to say, like, we've been so steady in season one that we... I feel like this is the longest time we've been apart. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it breaks feels... my heart that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. What's crazy is that, like, even during this window, like our campaign together also stopped. Oh yeah, so it, it was, was like a full stop, <laughs> which was very useful for my like busy, chaotic schedule that my life is. But also, oh, I'm so happy that we're doing things again. Yeah, it has been so. Four weeks have passed. The campaign has started, and we're back to doing these recordings again thank you to josh from aka moon roster for being our special guest yes super fun thank you josh i feel like i know you you guys now (laughs) it's amazing (laughs) it's a little bit more the magic of podcasts (laughs) yeah uh what have you been up to this past month you sent me i believe it was a picture yesterday Oh, yes, no, it was. The weekend. I think it was. No, no, yes, has to. It was yesterday. Or which one do you mean? Uh, about the festival. That oh, yes. That was festival. As we're re- Yeah, tell me more about that. That was festival. I mean, that was yesterday. <laughs> that go. was festival. I can still talk. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was yesterday night. Yeah. Um, afternoon at night, I should say. So hopefully my voice sounds nice and rugged now. <laughs> nice, nice. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, honestly, I was cool wondering, rasp. like, I hope I still have voice tomorrow. But we'll see. But so far, we're good. So that's great. But yes, for the uninitiated, I work part-time at a local literature festival here in Holland, which is super Mm. fun. And yesterday, finally, was uh, the date of the actual festival. It used to happen in November, but then the COVID measurements and stuff, we had to cancel it and postpone it to, well, yesterday, I guess. And I'm super happy that it happened. And it was so fun because it was my first one because I don't work super um, for a long time at this company yet. And it was just, you're, you're a little bit familiar with like theater and performance, I think, right? Of course, yeah. You've been on stage, yeah. Yeah. It was just that familiar, you know what I'm talking about, the familiar sort of backstage hustle, mm-hmm. getting a feeling, running back and forth between halls and stuff. It was, I honestly loved it so much more than I was going to think that I would. So that was really fun. I think I went home like at a decent, decent time <laughs> still. <laughs> what, also because I had to take the train and the last one was like, like one, one or something. So I think I was okay, home at okay. like just past midnight. So that was good. That was good. Nice. <laughs> also because we had to record today. So I was like, I can't, I can't do everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. But um, yeah, super fun. Ah. Yeah. Last time I was on stage for anything was like in my school years. So it's, it's been, a, it's been a minute Throwback. since I stepped on stage. But yeah, that little. But you know like, this feeling, right? Of yeah. Of course, of course. Like the tinge of excitement right before and everything's about feeling. to happen. 
And I wasn't even like performing or anything. I was just like organizing and running around and organizing people. But it was, um, I mean, I wasn't even running around that much. I was mostly like in charge of the projections and stuff and the decor mm. and stuff, which was super fun because then I could still see like a lot of the program because I was just in the, in the actual theater watching it as I was clicking through the projections and stuff. Nice. Yeah. So fun. And this is kind of like the culmination of like weeks and weeks and work, right? Well, yeah, like, honestly, like, this has been the first festival since COVID that's been like a oh, proper sort of thing that we, I mean, we've we've done like a lot of online stuff and there's always mm. programming going around. Like, we're also making podcasts there and we have like little evening programs and I don't know, interviews and talks and whatnot. Right. But we usually have a yearly festival and um, that wasn't a thing because COVID didn't allow mm-hmm. big hallways full of people. So. Yeah, that was super fun. And um, I'm also glad that it's happened, <laughs> that I have a bit more time now to do <laughs> podcasting and stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. so crazy because like sports events and uh, and competitions nowadays, you can hear the live audience behind it. And it's like, oh, I missed this. I didn't realize oh, how much yep. I missed this. You yep, know? That's so true. Yeah. So it's crazy. really a different, different feeling entirely when you're doing stuff for a live audience. Yeah. Half mm-hmm. of the time I was like so jealous of all the performers. I was like, oh, this life. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I always have this whenever I go to the theater. So that's great. <laughs> that's part of part of the gig. <laughs> totally valid. Yeah. How, how about you? How have you been? Uh, I haven't gone anywhere yet. A lot of the past month has been kind of planning what's going to happen for the rest of the year. Oh, okay. Um, like what, what kind of planning? Uh, my family and my friends are all sorting out like trips to go places like in the summer or the fall. Mm. And it's like, now's the time you plan because, you know, now that the world's back open. Fair enough, um, yeah. Every, all the tickets are, are rapidly increasing in price. <laughs> so we're all uh-huh. trying to hustle to get that done. But mostly right. I've just been organizing myself you know um working on that's the website for my too. yes youtube channel so that's a good start Ooh, love yeah, that. gotta learn like three new programs just to get that running <laughs> so i'm back at the start again are yeah. you building it from scratch or are you like using a theme or something yeah there are templates to start with but if you want to oh, get good. anything like that breaks the mold then you gotta like learn how they you work need to get like, it to the code right yeah yeah exactly so I mean, I'm looking forward to it. It's just finding the time, you know, things are just happening. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. But organizing is so underrated. (laughs) I wish people would (laughs) like appreciate time to organize more than is going on now. But yeah, love that for you. (laughs) Yeah. Gosh, we should probably get into it. Um, This is also going to be the first episode that I'm going to share with my YouTube audience, which is going to be really exciting. Oh, yeah, that's right. If you guys are listening for the first Hello, time, YouTube. welcome, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> this might uh, a couple more ears might hear this than usual. So, uh, yeah, that's fun. Yeah, let's not dawdle around and let's get into our first topic. I believe I'm going first. Is that correct? Yes, bring it on. Awesome. So, <laughs> this is kind of a weird topic, but very appropriate to kind of celebrate <laughs> okay. or at least acknowledge uh, the end of the American tax season, which is literally today, the day we're recording. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Such an my, inspiring, inspiring mm-hmm. call. <laughs> uh, my topic for today is money. Uh, this was actually Ooh. suggested by a fan of the show. Uh, we got an email, I believe a month ago from Doug the Dragonborn, who I believe to be is a publisher right. on... Yeah, the DM skilled for uh, Dungeons and Dragons homebrew content. So thank you for the suggestion. And if yeah, any of you so out fun. there, 
uh, yeah, are listening uh, and have ideas for future topics for us to discuss, contact us at yourriversarewrong at gmail.com. Uh, anyway, <laughs> hopefully I, I snuck that in uh, nice and smooth. Perfect. Uh, Super smooth. Yeah. So anyway, money, coinage, currency, uh, mm-hmm, the concept mm-hmm. of such. Uh, instead of stressing about it like I have been for the past <laughs> month, uh, uh-huh. I kind of wanted <laughs> to. Yeah. Uh, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about its history and how it plays a role in both the world building of fictional worlds and storytelling from a narrative impetus. So uh, to kind of kick this off, I wanted to toss a pop question in your direction. Ooh, okay. Uh, uh, Where do you believe the concept of currency began in our own world history? Ooh. Hmm. Shot in the dark. I feel like like my brain reverts back to, like, history class Mm -hmm. in middle school, where I think the only thing I remember (laughs) that I ever learned about money is... That it started with sort of trading, like, hey, mm-hmm. I'll give you a sheep, you, you'll you get, I don't know, three bottles of wine. I, I don't know how <laughs> things work in the Middle Ages, but, you know, you give one okay. thing, you gain one thing, kind of. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, that became such a hassle, or when people have so much shit and the value differs per object or per tradable good, I guess, it becomes super complicated because then you have to constantly ship back and forth all these goods and stuff. And then at some point, if you just give that value in one specific uh, material such as gold Mm -hmm. or something or like a valuable material you can ship very little quantities while trading back and forth a lot of quote-unquote value at the same time so it's super efficient instead of like actually having to bring like a thousand cheap (laughs) instead of just like one (laughs) bar of gold i don't know yeah exactly i think that's how it started and then at some point we don't even need gold and we're just like here's here's my digital money can i give you digital money and i'll get back digital money or other goods something like that right yeah exactly so um this is going to be a really quick history class uh i am not a (laughs) trained professor i can't (laughs) confirm the validity of all of this to the to the t but um this is what i gleaned from uh, a good number of google searches so Mm -hmm. (laughs) everything with a grain of salt that's how everyone always. Yeah. So basically, uh, trading and bartering has always been in every uh, in every sort of civilization. Back uh, from what I was able to glean from is the internet. <laughs> Mesopotamia was one of the first uh, one of the first civilizations to have their own banking system that was able to hold deposits of like grains mm-hmm. and livestock and other valuables and uh, not formal coinage, but uh, things like shells were used in ancient China to denote currency. But the first coins shells, were mint- did you say? Yeah, shells. Oh, okay. That's pretty cool. Yeah. But the first coins were minted in Lydia, which is now modern day Turkey. Uh, it had an imprint mm. of a lion's head on a piece of electrum metal. And it's the first recorded instance of a circulating currency. This kind of happens when civilizations get too big. And of course, like trading gets complicated between multiple different parties. Uh, eventually, other civilizations minted coins of silver and gold emblazoning the faces of rulers on the front of it. Now, from the original suggestion from uh, Mr. Doug, uh, he wanted to uh, specifically bring up a very interesting development of currency, which is, which some people might know from their own uh, history books, the previous British currency, uh, known as the pound sterling, was one of the predecessors to the digital era multiples of 10 currency. Um, The pound sterling was divided by increments of 240, which basically means that one pound sterling was equal to 20 shillings and each shilling was equal to 12 pennies. 
making uh-huh. the pound sterling 240 pence, which is a big, a bit of an overwhelming number, but you know. Yeah. yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, they broke this down into multiple coins to represent multiples of pennies and shillings, which include the three pence, the six pence, the florin, the half crown, the crown, oh, and yeah, yeah. of course the hay penny, which counted for half penny. The thing is that most of these systems that uh, diverted from multiples of 10 were standardized to multiples of 10 during the digital era when things could be kept track of with computers and devices and Hmm. uh, everything kind of had to be standardized the world over. And yeah, that's the very short history lesson of kind of the development of coinage. So that's interesting (laughs) how that went from like random sort of increments to like equals of 10 or something. Isn't that kind of like similar to the mathematics system that changed as you know the arabics figured out that zero is a thing and stuff <laughs> they figured out that zero was a thing and math changed. <laughs> right isn't that a thing math yeah. changed forever <laughs> <laughs> everything changed when the zero i'm pretty sure the pound sterling was its worth or its value was literally based on a pound of sterling so i think oh yeah that's where the shift happens right where we start like trading in metaphors instead of in like actual like <laughs> metaphors stuff. I mean, kind of. Isn't that what money is? I mean, what are we even trading? Like digital, like, what are we trading? Nothing. What are We're trading like the idea metaphors. of something, right? That, isn't that a thing? Yeah, exactly. Like the, That's why the we coinage. don't have like gold coins and stuff anymore. It doesn't actually have to be gold anymore. Exactly. It's representative of, at least in America, I don't know how it works in other countries. It's representative of an mm-hmm. amount of gold in our US reserves. Yeah, it's representative. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now we tra- use credit cards, use debit cards, we use like checks and all that. <laughs> Plastic is the new gold. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Zell, Venmo, all that stuff. So to kind of tie this back to the concept of world building, uh, we're familiar with our own like coin system, our own currency and how that works. Mm-hmm. And every time we're introduced to a fictional world, we have to learn how currency is handled. In more like futuristic society, it's oh uh, yeah, it's like of credits and stuff. In um older societies, it might not be like coins, but it might be something entirely different, like gems or other valuable mm-hmm. items. You know, yeah. So I kind of wanted to just discuss how different forms of literature kind of handle uh, the concept of money and how that might differ from how we do it. Have you seen right, any like yeah. interesting instances of? like currency in books or movies you've watched before? Ooh, um, that's a good one. The first thing, before I jump into anything else uh, that I mm-hmm. immediately had to think of when you said like jewels and stuff, is the sort of obvious idea of like a lair or of like a treasure chest or mm-hmm. something, right? I mean, probably also for visual or I guess narrative interest. There's not just coins in there. There's also like gold bars or like pearl necklaces or mm-hmm. jewels or crowns of stuff the value of each thing that's in there it's all considered kind of treasure exactly but it's not the same kind of thing you know and it's all i guess currency because it's worth a certain amount of you know something but one thing can be like a jewel necklace and the other thing can be like a literal bar of gold and maybe another thing can be like i don't know a keepsake from when you were little i don't know that can be in there or a treasure uh, map that's something too That's sort of the value of finding something that is valuable, which makes the thing in itself valuable, right? There's all kinds of shifting ideas of what value means in Mm -hmm. a sort of physical thing. That was the first thing I had to think of. And then the second thing, which I think we might might have already discussed at some point, I'm not sure, but it's in the movie The Snowpiercer, which is super good. It's a science fiction movie about, Mm -hmm. yeah, super short premise. The whole world has been frozen over and there's been like 
nature right. disasters and stuff all around, except for one train track that keeps riding. And within the train, humanity still exists, kind of. So it's a super kind of limited space idea of a society, basically, in the train. And different train cars and stuff have different people or how wealthy someone is depends on what train car you're in and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's it's super... Yeah, God, you should really... It's such a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> we'll add it to the list. Add it to the yeah, list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We will, we will. <laughs> and in this, I think at some point, because food is becoming super scarce or something, mm -hmm. they have like these bars that are just... They look kind of like dark, I guess, granola bars or something, but they're a little bit more squishy. At some point, it becomes kind of the currency or the thing that everyone seeks after, I guess. So this becomes the sort of main thing, if I remember correctly, of getting and gaining goods, you can always trade them for this sort of granola bar, super basic food that they have there. It's the one thing that they can make and pump out and have quite a lot of, but is also very sought after. So yeah, I don't know. If your society is not really good, <laughs> it feels like a lot of time it reverts back to like actual trading, like actual food, because right. that's what you don't need like gold coins. You need food to, you know, survive. Um, so if it's more like the basic human survival instinct, it's it's not really about gold or about value anymore. It's just right. about what I need right now. Yeah, that's the first two things that came to mind. Yeah, I mean, it might be like almost like a touch relevant to what's going on like in the world right now where uh world events can drastically change the value of established oh, yeah. currency right um mm -hmm. which in, since our coinage is no longer the valuable itself but rather a representative of it the, the value of it can fluctuate like wildly which is mm -hmm. crazy to think of um i like how you brought up treasure in particular because as you were talking about it it's so interesting to think that like the treasure era of like our civilization has kind of passed, if that makes sense. Like we're what not. What do you mean with the treasure era? As in like scouring the world for like uh, rare uh, grains and riches, I guess, and yeah. riches. Like put like, the concept of like, like physical pirates wealth, right? and yeah. excavations. Yeah, mm. um, a lot of that has been like thrown into museums and preserved. And <laughs> finding like a true like proper treasure hoard isn't really something that happens in this like day and age at least like in the indiana jones style that we've been i mean yeah <laughs> been fair painted. enough also we know a lot more about the world now like of course yeah. we've discovered a lot of stuff so <laughs> i guess the things that we don't know about yet are like i guess the brain and like under under the sea and stuff <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> but i don't that. know how much gold you're gonna find there you know <laughs> but yeah um i just think it's so interesting to kind of note how currency is a great way to gauge the state of the world you know mm. the if the yeah, world like is that. like stable and everything's the gears are all turning then currency is very reliable right but if things mm. are kind of falling apart even like in a dystopian style then the value of like proper coinage falls greatly because right, what yeah. truly matters is um, necessities for life which is what coinage and currency is used for you know mm. yeah um, and for that i kind of want to segue into how currency or how money is used to motivate a story, how it's used to storytell. So just as a kind of to kick this off right at the bat, I have been watching uh, a series that I very, very much enjoy, which is uh, Dimension 20's uh, Starstruck Odyssey, which is a D&D campaign oh, with okay. a bunch of uh, very talented comedians and improv actors. But the premise of one character right from episode one is that he's 750,000 credits in debt. 
Like that's the start. <laughs> Love it. Like from cool. the jump. Perfect. Like usually when yeah. you play D&D, you have like a little amount of money, right? A little bit. He's so far in the red that it is impossible <laughs> to pay for. Like truly okay. unfathomable. Uh-huh. So you you realize that as, as nice of a guy he is and how he is like a reliable person, he always has this weight of the debt in the back of his mind. He always has, what can I do to try to reduce this debt? What can I work on? Like mm. he spends like his his waking his sleeping hours like tutoring on the side just so he can get a little bit more coin in there just, little, just keep off the payments <laughs> oh, of interest so Damn. it's 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 so sad but you see like not to get too existential here how money <laughs> is a very much motivating factor in a very good amount of a great amount of stories i can yeah. also think of like the pursuit of happiness with will smith a fantastic story of a father who's just scraping by and really trying to earn his way back mm. to a like a living wage, like a a lifestyle that can support his son. Money is often portrayed as like an evil sort of influence. It's kind of something that dehumanizes things, but very much often it forces people to strive and achieve and be great, like to kind of reach where they want to be, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that immediately made me think of like classic hippie idea of like, I just want to live in a place where there's no money and no system and, you know, all that (laughs) stuff. And I always find it so, well, stupid to say that because the whole thing with money is that it's only an idea that we, I mean, of course, it started as the physical thing that you're describing. But at some point it turned into this, I guess, metaphorical value that we're Mm -hmm. trading and, and using to, I guess, keep up things. Money in itself is not something evil and that that we should run away from as far as possible. It's just in itself just a means to sort of like give and gain things from each other or Mm -hmm. to each other. And I think it's it's quite sort of a troubling idea, honestly, that money is like the most evil thing in the world. Of course, it sucks when you don't have it or you're in debt or in trouble because of it. Or of course, it sucks when you're in the system and falling out of it. But that counts for everything, right? If you suddenly lose your education, there's all kinds of losing or, I guess, falling out of the system that just suck, Mm -hmm. of course. But it's not money in itself that is the evil thing that we should all get rid of. It's not like one person thought, haha, now we're going to make the world super dependent on value and rich people. And that's not how it worked. It was just, (laughs) it started from trading and then it became naturally this thing that turned into a sort of metaphorical value system that you can gauge interest and you know all that stuff with that line is super thin or something in in certain people or certain ideas and i think it really (laughs) shouldn't be because it's i don't like the idea that money is like inherently evil or like the cause of everything that ever went wrong in the world (laughs) (laughs) i mean i understand the idea of like the the idea that you want to maybe get back to nature or that you want to lose the societal ideas that we've sort of been living in now of course that's sort of distant from the caveman aesthetic of like you know (laughs) finding your own stuff and taking care of yourself and not needing anything else but the world around you blah 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 but (laughs) it's not it's not like that one thing inherently leads to the other or like keeps you from experiencing the other right i think people should realize that (laughs) yeah (laughs) as we continue to tread the line uh of real world philosophy versus fictional storytelling (laughs) Um, I think the true struggle of kind of interpreting currency uh, in in the form of uh, storytelling is that money often leads to hierarchy, right? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. The more money or the more 
you have of valuables and and uh, mm-hmm. and worth you know the higher you are on the social ladder the more power you have the more authority you wield right and that mm-hmm. that yeah. concept is inherently like evil or frowned upon and that's much that's an easier way to convey somebody who is kind of antagonizing the rest if you hold power over another human being mm-hmm. you know yeah it's very uh, synonymous to power it- Exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Honestly, I feel like it's very interesting to think of what other ways there are to to create hierarchy in a society with value, I would say. Like the classic system is the way of using money or like riches or stuff like that. But I think once you make sort of the switch in your brain and be like, okay, what else could be value that is not sort of the standard gold bars or, you know, physical stuff that we often see in fantasy, but also in the real world. I can imagine that you can just say, okay, what if flowers are the most rare thing in the world and people that have the most or can cultivate the most flowers are like the metaphorical richest people in the world? Mm -hmm. That's also then in a way a sort of currency because that will lead to a system of, you know, trading or finding the rarest ones or having the most land to cultivate on. Or I don't know, I'm just, you know, spitting out stuff right now. But of course. yeah, I think I think that's a very healthy and interesting way to sort of shift your idea of currency if you want to pursue that or or find a way for that in your system or in your world building to shift some ideas about that around and, and create some uh, new room for, I don't know, alternatives, I guess, to right. the standard goals. Uh, it's very much an activity of establishing what has value, what do people want and what are people willing to do for it, you know? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, as a as a final like anecdote, uh, also from Starstruck Odyssey, the campaign, uh, there was a casino, which was a location that they visited. And right outside the casino, there was a treadmill uh, where you could uh, step onto the treadmill and run and spend years of your life to receive more betting tokens. Uh, and I think oh, it uh, painted yeah. a very concise picture of what do you hold valuable, right? Like, what what is the purpose of currency in your story, in your setting, and what are you willing to pay for it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. A fantastic topic that uh, treads very close to home, so. <laughs> yep, that's, that's very we, true. <laughs> we can continue this longer, but honestly, after tax season, I'm over it. Let's move on to another topic. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I will make the perfect bridge for you here because we okay. literally talked about pennies and stuff. And here's something that I want to share with you that will probably beautifully lead into my topic. <laughs> <laughs> I followed German in high school, the language German. So I had sure. like five years of learning the German language. And this was an interesting thing that I learned <laughs> in German class. <laughs> sure. Bertolt Brecht, who is at this point famous writer, but also, I guess, how do you say that? Like theater writer, I guess. And he made the Three Penny Opera, Mm. which is a German uh, piece of theater. And what interests me most about this is that this piece of theater is one that kind of propelled the idea of breaking the fourth wall. And that's something you're probably Mm. more familiar with, because to get a little bit into theater history, I guess, here, usually what happens in sort of classical pieces is that when you're sitting in, just imagine this for a sec, you're sitting in a theater and you see like the sides of the theater and then you have sort of the the floor of the actual stage and you have the the wings. <laughs> I was like, what's this English word? But it's wings. <laughs> and you have the backdrop and then the actors 
kind of imagine a fourth wall in between you in the audience and them as the performers, the sort of fourth wall that goes right in between the stage and the, I guess, the rest of the theater. Right. That is invisible and that they, as their characters, cannot see through that doesn't exist. The audience doesn't exist is basically the idea. Of course. And this was something that was very usual, like when you go to a Shakespeare play or whatever, or you go to like a classical piece where just characters are in a room, they have interaction, there's an interesting narrative going on, etc., etc. And then what Bertolt Brecht did is that he, at some point in the Three Penny Opera, let one of his characters turn to the audience and be like, are you seeing what's happening here? Don't you find this super ridiculous? And he literally <laughs> addressed the audience. And that was something super new and super interesting. And I think it also propels sort of the term of epic theater, I think is what it's called, if you want to look it up. But I love this idea of breaking the fourth wall and sort of finding the sweet spot or maybe not so sweet spot where it becomes difficult to maybe envision the fourth wall or where uh, the audience has to break the fourth wall or, you know, stuff like movies where the fourth wall is literally your TV screen. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of things that you can think about when you're thinking of this idea of what the fourth wall actually means in narrative. And when you sort of break that gap between the audience and the stage, it sort of enters a new layer of a piece and it sort of allows the audience or maybe forces the audience to be a part of it because suddenly right. you're addressable, I guess. You're like able to be seen by the performers or by the characters. And I think that's super interesting. Specifically for D&D, of course, where audience and players are kind of <laughs> constantly shifting back and forth, right? This is the thing that I maybe love most about D&D, that you're constantly back and forthing and that you can, in one second, you know, laugh about a joke that another player made. And then in the next second, you have to actually play along and be your own character again. And yeah, I don't know. I really love that idea. And I wondered if you, how you kind of look at this or if you're even aware of it when, you know, running D&D or when seeing movies. Yeah, share share some of your thoughts about this. Yeah, of course. The way I kind of understand breaking the fourth wall is when the characters in the story acknowledge they're in a story, right? So mm. it's when yeah. they kind of transcend whatever situation they're in to talk to or converse with the reader or the watcher or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes the fourth wall, at least in books... I've seen the fourth wall being broken in a kind of past tense style. Like they acknowledge that what's be what's happening and what's occurring is all like in the past. It's a it's a retrospective look on like a history record, right? Mm. And you as a reader are experiencing a history record of what's occurred. Right. Of course, the fourth wall always breaks in like cartoons where uh, like Bugs Bunny would turn to the TV and, you know, just point <laughs> something uh -huh, and, uh -huh. and be like, isn't this ridiculous kind of? Yeah. And of course, like in modern media and comics, uh, Deadpool is a very famous comic book character that constantly, constantly breaks the fourth wall. And oh, OK. Interesting. And, and instead of pulling from references from the cinema, from the um, comic universe, they pull from references from ours where they talk about like actors and movies and, <laughs> you know, every turn of the page acknowledge that this is a comic book and all of this is ridiculous, but we're going to keep playing along, you mm. know. It's super fun. Sometimes it's a little bit tacky and, you know, breaks immersion. Uh, so, yeah, like, imagine if... Yeah, that's, imagine that's the if point like, of it. Like, <laughs> I think. Uh, what do you call it? What's a good example? Imagine if, like, uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, Gandalf just, <laughs> like, in the middle of the bridge, he says, 
Now listen here, readers. This is where I now it gets I, interesting. Now it gets interesting. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Something ridiculous. Pay attention here. Yeah, yeah. this will be uh-huh. important in the next <laughs> chapter. You know, <laughs> dun dun dun. Like yeah. it's sometimes, sometimes exactly. it's, it just totally breaks the flow of uh, what is <laughs> you know when we read we have a suspension of disbelief like things. Yeah things happen and we just accept that it's part of the world or part of the situation Mm -hmm. but when they truly fourth wall break it's like okay fine like i can't really take this seriously anymore if Mm. you're not taking this seriously yeah Um, well it depends how you look at it though because there's also other examples i think that are have a more that also break the fourth wall but then still have a different approach to it where it doesn't feel like comically like mm. the examples that you gave i remember there's one i don't think you like non people from Holland would know this, um, but in know, in our Dutch me. class, I'll, we would I'll know have. It. I'll know okay, it. sure. <laughs> okay, well here you go. <laughs> this is the book, uh, Multatuli, or oh, written course, by Multatuli. Yeah. Oh, do you know oh, yeah, it? That one. Okay, no, that's no, no, I don't. I don't know. It. Oh, I don't know. Rip. Ah, <laughs> oh, you got me there. Fuck. I was so convinced. <laughs> You're so evil. Could you imagine? It'd be great. This is the book, Multatuli. <laughs> And it's basically about, it's quite an old book, I think, uh, like 1860 or something was the publishing date, I think. And this book is basically about the VOC, which was the sort of Dutch colonization, getting spices from India and surroundings thing in like the 1850s, 60s, about that time, which now is very much frowned upon. But that time it was just like oh cool we're getting we're getting rich from all these like strange new spices that we found in indonesia cool let's just raid them and completely like gain all their wealth mm. and this book was written around that time but then in i think like the last or the last three or something chapters multatuli who is actually the author of it it's just a sort of story about someone in this environment someone that is like a governor or something in Dutch India, which was the name for it at that time. Right. And there's a story about two of the people that are actually living in that now colonized land and that are having a little story themselves, well, stuff like that. So it's not breaking the fourth wall by any means. And then in the last chapter, he's literally like, okay, stop the story. I, Multatuli, will take the pen now and uh, write to you what I actually think about all this. And he had like oh, this entire shoot. monologue almost or sort of fourth wall breaking essay in the last chapter or few chapters where he was basically like stating all the wrongs and all the things that were like super shit about the whole situation and the the Uh idea of that gaining wealth in the way that we did and it's super famous for it now because of course it was one of the first books that really like stood against the idea of the the colonization and everything and i think that was also a really strong example of like literally forcing the reader to be like okay, you're immersed now because I wrote this entire beautiful, wonderful story for you. And then now I'm literally going to break that suspension of disbelief because it is actually awful what's going on. Like, are you seeing what's going on here? How can you read along with this? Huh. Where it was like a super almost political tool, right? To break the fourth wall and actually like slap people in the face that were reading it and be like, hey, are you even awake? Are you, <laughs> are you understanding what's going on here? Do you see what I see? Which is super interesting. And I think there's also more like subtle ways of doing it sometimes you have a paragraph that says when it's like a first person book or something that is just like a sort of classical immersion in a story and you know just following the narrative at some point Mm. you can have like a paragraph or two that's like i didn't know how much this would mean to me yet 
but I would soon know that it would change the directory of my life for for the better or the worse. That's also right. It can just be one sentence that already does that. Like the I person, you know, the first person in that chapter or in that narrative doesn't know what's in the future. They don't know what's going to happen to them. But sometimes you'll have this mm. little sentence that sort of trickles through that shows the fact that the writer is there, right? Or that the writer wants you to already feel a sense of dread or something for what's coming or whatever the, you know, reason for a sentence like that is. So it can be like super subtle and tiny, or it can be like mm. super groundbreaking political, or it can be super comical. There's all kinds of ways for using this mechanic, I feel. That's so interesting. What I kind of gleaned from it, from uh, kind of just like you describing it, is that is very unconventional. I think the mm. the most striking thing about it was that kind of the, well, you know, when you take when they take the pen and begin to explain like how they truly feel about this, uh, usually in literature, the story concludes from page one to the ending, and then it's up to the reader to take what they will from what mm. they've read, right? Uh, yeah, but when it's kind of when the ending is truly like utilized to um, add a new perspective to this story and kind of flip <laughs> flip it on its head on what the reader <laughs> uh-huh. could have taken about it, and the author is more like, no, this is what you should take from the story. Yeah, um, that's that's really interesting. It might not be the most pleasant way to uh, experience a story. It definitely will be surprising, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But I know that readers when they when they, you know, if, if it's a fictional work, right, um, they like to take what they want when they conclude it. They like uh-huh. their parts yeah. of the story that they'll enjoy and they'll take away from it and they'll learn from. Uh, and when <laughs> what truly is what a character from the book, was it? Or is it the author who who's uh, how do you pronounce his name? Mata- Multatuli. Multatuli, right. I think. Is that a is that a character in the book or is that the author of the book? I think he is the I person in one of the first chapters, but he, as you know, the writer of it, doesn't Got really it. come forth until the last chapters, if I remember correctly. Got it. That's so interesting. Imagine like, <laughs> imagine if um, you read like The Hunger Games, and then at the very end, <laughs> Katniss Everdeen takes the couple last few chapters, is like, all right, I gotta. You've been reading this story Here's for what's a going long on. time. Yeah. <laughs> this is kind of what it felt like from my perspective. I'm going to be real and honest and truthful and harsh with you. Yeah. You, you're going to learn today. Like that would be <laughs> definitely uh, an interesting take and a unique one. For oh, sure. Gosh. Yeah. I think it's it's so fascinating that the fourth wall is almost like a tool that you have to decide to use or not. Right. It's also really about escapism, right? Like the idea that you were saying before, the suspension of disbelief and all that stuff, right? In any way that you sort of take in fiction or read fiction or watch movies or any way that fiction is there, um, mm-hmm. always this sense of escapism or the idea of that you're escaping in somebody else's narrative or or another narrative. It doesn't even have to be from one person or something. It's sort of the escapism and the getting lost in a story that's really, for me at least, one of the biggest values of fiction. Right. Breaking the fourth wall or the fourth wall being there or not being there impacts that idea so much that it's really, it's in my mind, it's such a hard tool to work with because the whole idea of immersion and being lost in a story gets broken when you literally break that immersion, when you break the fourth wall, when you're like, hello, audience, hello, reader. Right. You know, 
And if you want to use that properly, you really have to think about the impact of losing the agency of the audience just interpreting whatever it is, right? It's it's kind of saying, "Hello, I'm here. Audience, what are you thinking? Do you want to share do you want to share your thoughts because this is what I feel about it?" <laughs> yeah, it's exactly what you're saying. Like the whole idea of interpreting a story that's completely separate of your own life, of this world, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, gets kind of lost in the idea of breaking the fourth wall because then the audience is literally also there in that world that you've just experienced. Right. It could just be a different layer of immersion to include yourself in the progression of the story, right? To mm -hmm. recognize yourself as an eyewitness of the events that are occurring. Yeah. It could be even more immersive than before the wall was broken. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's you... very true. Yeah, that's literally mm -hmm. what games are, I feel. You know, where you literally have more agency because you're present, because you have the tools to experience the world the way right. you want it to, which yeah. is an entirely different topic, I feel. But entirely I mean, different topic. There's so many different <laughs> angles to this. I didn't really it's, realize yeah. that, but that's great. Yeah. I think like a lot of our topics, we could continue talking about this for a good long yeah. time. Fair um, enough. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> we'll I, revisit I do, it. Yeah. I do love it. Yeah, absolutely. What a great topic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was cool. theater inspired. Did you, did uh, yeah, you realize? Yeah, I, I could. I could tell. I, 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 there were probably no some fourth wall breaking at the festival. Maybe no, no, no. Mm, probably, don't. yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump into the prompt to end our podcast. Um, for yes. those listening for the first time, uh, one of us tosses out a creative prompt, and we just kind of have to build a story or world based on it. Uh, now, this prompt that I'm bringing up is something that we actually discussed in a previous episode back in season one. And I kind of really wanted to, you know, make a make a soft attempt at trying to flush it out. So, okay, okay. Um, it might be a bit grand. We'll try to we'll try to contain this and not get too carried away <laughs> with what's about to happen. So, no pressure. Um, okay. For this prompt, I want us to create an explanation for why hell is in the sky and heaven is deep below. <laughs> I remember this one. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Why hell is in the sky and heaven is below or in the yeah, like we yeah, we discussed that I guess. that often mm -hmm. the good variation of divinity is often found in its ascended properties. Ascended properties, it's in the sky. It's usually very high up. That's good, and all mm -hmm. the bad stuff is deep below. If we flipped yeah. it, what caused it? Why is that the case? Mm. So um, is okay, there, is, is so, there a so mythos it's, it's the thing that's been flipped. Are you saying right, yes. or is this the thing that's always been this way? That's the question. Which uh, mm. which way do we want to approach this? I know this is a big one, so I kind of want to. Let's we can kind of constrain it, pick a direction, and more. We'll I feel with like it. it's maybe more interesting if it's always been this way, because then you know the world has revolved around it. Fair. And if it's just has flipped, then people are just confused. <laughs> I feel. Yeah, sure. That's so true, maybe that's, that's more interesting to sort of riff off about. Okay. So yeah. Okay. So the prompt is: It's always been this way. What does that change about the mythos? Mm, interesting. Like about the about the deities, about the celestials, yeah. about everything else you know god so interesting i would feel first off that everything that's on earth rather than everything in space is most holy i guess so everything that's closest mm. to earth or i don't know maybe like earthquakes right those are like a sign of holiness or the gods telling us something Ooh, whereas I perhaps like in our world the weather or a storm or you know sunlight is something like divine so I would say the opposite is true in our imaginative flipped version, where I guess everything that's closest to the ground or maybe in the ground or going in the ground is the, well, if we're talking about hierarchy, by the way, is mm -hmm. maybe on top of the hierarchy. 
So also perhaps, you know, if this is a modern world, maybe not, apartment buildings or buildings that are super high up in the sky are like less valued because they're not at all close to the ground. I would say like maybe in cities or places where people are very rich, the city is super spread out and everyone wants their own piece of this holy earth that they're on. Hmm. Yeah, I really like that. Um, it could be like the only the fabulously wealthy can live in the plains and the flatlands. Uh, and anybody yeah. who is poor or scarce of resources sent to the high mountains or the hills. Something like that. Like, yeah. Yeah. And like those places or are at least connected like, to the ground, I guess. Yeah, of course. Mm. Yeah. And just like those places are just not developed, you know. Um, mm. I love I love the concept of sacred ground. I, I think that's such a such a poignant yeah, that's uh, image. That's literally what it is, actually. Yeah, mm. and I mean it ties into like something that occurs in real life where we bury people in the ground. You know, that could be in this fictional world just a symbol of sending people ascension, to heaven. Yeah. yeah, dissension, I guess. <laughs> dissension. Yeah, that's <laughs> <Dissension>. pretty good. <laughs> Holy dissension. Oh, Basically, yeah. What a concept. <laughs> Um, oh wow. that that is so great. Um you could have like churches um uh, located within like underground confines, you know. Yeah. A place that is kept like entirely like sterile or free of mm -hmm. um of outside influences. Mm -hmm. uh, like yeah. con basically controlled environments meant to preserve the sacredness of the land itself. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And I love how um the, you you said storms and weather could be like an antagonistic or an evil conjuration, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what it is now in a sort of different way. Like if it's, if there's a super intense storm going on, right? Or mm -hmm. like roaring rain or, or thunder or wind, we also have to hide in our, in our houses <laughs> because otherwise we might die. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, instead of sort of the storm being this thing of intensity or intrigue that it is for us now, or for me at least, <laughs> let's talk mm -hmm. about myself. <laughs> I feel like that can be a sort of trial, perhaps, or a sort of exactly what you're saying, like a hellscape unleashing on us. And we have to sort of believe in our sacred ground and believe in literally holding our fundament or our connection to the earth to not get blown away. It's sort of the different, it's, it's the same situation, like physically, mm. literally, but the idea, I guess, about it would be different. The mentality. Yeah, that's so, I already, I already, I feel like I can already visualize this. I can already see like, <laughs> like the, the tapestries of like the sky being painted in like reds and stuff. And kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And it also makes me wonder, like, because people need sunlight, right? Of course. If yes. the world is still the same kind of, except the ideas of holiness and stuff were flipped, mm -hmm. you know? People still like like being in the sky. I guess there's still this intriguing aspect about it, but maybe now it's a sort of sin to want that or to, to revel in sunlight. Oh, well, that's even more interesting. I was I was thinking more like the fact that all humans are like interested in flying or you know, mm -hmm. um Oh, it's like the devil's activity to fly. I mean, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> You're literally losing your footing. Like, how can we not frown upon that in the world where hell is in the sky <laughs> oh that's so funny could you imagine maybe the sort of idea of being grounded is the most sort of holy state of mind or state of being i guess that you can achieve rather than you know literal <laughs> i guess airbending style like floating meditation release everything of the material plane blah blah, blah. C could you imagine that being so deep rooted into ancient civilizations that like in present day our tunnel systems would be nothing short of like incredible but our <laughs> Probably, but our airplanes yeah. would be very poorly developed because there's <laughs> yes. like a stigma to even trying it. 
Like why sure. test the clouds? Yeah. Why test the storms when you could just build tunnels? You know, yeah, safe, secure, I guess that's holy. Also, like the least interesting. <laughs> if if that's not the holy thing that we would want to achieve, then why would we even bother, right? Mm-hmm. Which is also interesting because maybe then, ooh, here's an idea. Maybe then <laughs> in society, because if we're burrowing through the earth, we're also destroying or changing it to our mm. liking or to our use, right? So perhaps this is a sort of conflict in. Interesting. Thinking of like what sacred ground means. Is it, does it mean that we are able or allowed to disturb it? Does that mean that we can hollow it out? Because that's what you're doing with tunnels, right? Yeah. Does that mean that we would want to get closer to, I guess, the core of it or something? Yeah, I don't know. Interesting. It's kind of like the Tower of Babel, where you're like, what's the point where we, where the gods are like, this is enough? How much can you burrow before, <laughs> I guess, the, <laughs> the holy earth spirit will <laughs> Well, I can tell you, past us. the mantle, yeah. it gets pretty dangerous. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah, that's so interesting. Imagine like flying or airplanes is the way to keep the ground holy. Like we totally avoid tunnels because oh. um, to, to dig into <laughs> it would be to you know, defile sacred ground. ground. Uh. Uh, yeah, that's two different ways to look at it. That's fantastic. Yeah. I love that. Wow. Fascinating. That's really cool. <laughs> this is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cool topic. Um, cool love prompt. It. But, it, but it is, at the end of the day, just a prompt. So if anybody else wants to kind of build on this and discuss this. Break the fourth wall. Yeah. <laughs> uh, discuss it among your friends or just ponder on it yourself. We're going to be wrapping up this episode. First episode yes. of season two of Your Rivers Are Wrong has concluded. Hey. Uh, thanks, thanks for tuning in. It is so good to be back. So and good also. To- Thanks for uh, bringing up the topic that we should discuss today, Doug. Appreciate it. Yeah. If anybody, again, if anybody that else super has fun. more topics, uh, yourriversarewrong at gmail.com is our main contact. Let us mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. Let us know what you think. Yes. We'd love to hear from you. And yeah, uh, we always, as we conclude this episode, want to encourage uh, world building and storytelling in your own life, really trying to share our hobby with the rest of the world. <laughs> but as you delve into that activity, as you continue to do so always remember your rivers are wrong yep they're still wrong still wrong in season two it's <laughs> still in season two they're wrong yeah uh, have a good one <laughs> thank you so much for listening to this episode of your rivers are wrong if you have any questions comments or ideas for future episodes that you'd like to hear us cover feel free to contact us at yourriversarewrong at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is written by Maarte Schellekens. Thanks for that. And again, thank you so much for listening. We hope to see you at the next one. <laughs>